without God, everything is chaos. When you put rebellious people in a world under the control of a spiritual being whose very nature is deceit and who is adamantly opposed to God, well, that's a recipe for disaster, which is exactly what we've been seeing. When people make their lives all about themselves, we see the absolute worst case scenario. Despite all his efforts over thousands of years, the people have proven time and time again that they aren't interested in following God's path. Even though we all long to be in God's paradise, people, well, people just aren't interested in submitting themselves to God's ways in order to be able to enter in. We ended last time with God's epic silence. Despite always speaking from the beginning of the story until now, God stopped speaking. If people aren't going to listen, well, why say anything? If people are going to do whatever they want, regardless of your attempts to help them experience the life that is truly life, well, why bother? Sometimes to help people know how good something is, it has to be taken away for a while. God did eventually start speaking. He broke the silence when he sent his angel Gabriel to talk to a man named Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And, and, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and, and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord. A prepared people. Well, then Gabriel, the same angel, goes to a young woman by the name of Mary and says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, God wasn't just ending the silence. He was actually starting something incredible. God did something incredibly unusual. Instead of continuing to speak through representatives like angels, prophets, and kings, God actually wrote himself into the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the, the glory as, as the one and, and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not only did God create this amazing world by speaking it into existence, now he would enter into the world which he had made. And he wouldn't even make a grand entrance. He would enter the same way other human beings had entered the world, by being born. Can you fathom what's happening here? I mean, the God of the universe 
who created the earth or we walk on, who created the people and everything that's on this earth, this great God was coming to earth in the same way we all did. The one difference is that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by man, which is an important difference. What it means is that this baby would be fully human, but also fully God. He would experience everything we experience in life, including temptation, but his heart would not be driven by desire the same way ours is. One of our first encounters with Jesus exemplifies how Jesus was, in fact, this new kind of human that we've been talking about. So John the Baptist is born to Zachariah and Elizabeth, and Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph. Remember that part about John being filled with the Spirit before birth? Well, that actually happened. When Mary went to see Elizabeth, pre-born, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. But it would appear that Jesus and John's paths would diverge at this point. We don't know much about John's childhood, and we know very little about Jesus' childhood. We know that, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which fulfilled a prophecy. We know angels showed up to shepherds when he was born. We know wise men from the east came to worship him, and, and they also warned him that Herod was trying to kill Jesus, which then causes Mary and Joseph to flee to Egypt for their safety. This act would also fulfill another prophecy about the Messiah coming out of Egypt, just like God's people did so long ago. We know that from a young age, Jesus knew who he was. Because one day he chose to leave the caravan that his parents were in to spend some time in the temple, with his real father. But outside of that, we don't know all that much. But then when he's an adult, we see Jesus meet John again. This time, Jesus needs to get baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill all righteousness. And this is important. It's not just that Jesus gets baptized, but why he had to. Some say that Jesus' baptism is a fulfillment of prophecy. That might be true. Others say that his baptism may be part of tradition. Again, that's possible. But the real reason is that Jesus was submitting to his Father's will. We know this because as soon as Jesus emerges from the water, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And we hear the Father say, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus, in fact, would later say, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' purpose on earth was submission to the Father. He wasn't here to establish his own kingdom. He was here to bring God's kingdom, which brings Jesus' entire teaching into perspective. When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, Jesus was teaching what he was living. By the way, the spirit descending on Jesus also cannot be overlooked. Jesus is the only person on whom the spirit ever descended onto and remained. Others in history received the spirit, but it didn't stay for all their lives but the Spirit remained, or abided, with Jesus. After his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. After fasting for 40 days, the devil would come to Jesus and tempt him in three ways. First, the devil would tempt Jesus with bread. 
the lust of the flesh. Just like Eve saw that the fruit was desirable for food, Jesus was tempted with bread. But he refused, saying, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil would tempt Jesus. If you are the Son of God, does that sound familiar? The devil is trying to question Jesus' identity as the Son of God the same way he got Eve to question her identity as being made in the image of God. This is also a temptation to pride. Hey, Jesus, just show the world that you are the Son of God, and when they see the angels catch you, they'll know who you are. Well, then the devil takes Jesus high up on a mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world, offering them all to Jesus if Jesus will just bow down and worship the devil. Well, instead of falling for the lust of the eyes temptation, Jesus says, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Each time Jesus was tempted, he responded to the devil with truth from the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus, even though he was, he was weak and starving, was actually able to resist the devil's temptation. Where we failed, Jesus actually succeeded. The devil would then leave him alone until a more opportune time. Well, Jesus, born of the Spirit and, and filled with the Spirit, was able to resist temptation. This new human with this new heart was able to live out God's commands. This new human, when, when tempted to worship idols, was actually able to resist the urge to do so. There's something incredibly special about this new human. Jesus, Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, God Himself in the flesh. Some religions falsely offer the hope for humans to become a god if you live the right kind of life. But there's no religion where God becomes a human. This is a truly unique move on God's part. Nothing like this has ever happened. Jesus left behind the riches of heaven and became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus himself said that, that he came down from heaven. I've come down from heaven, he said, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus came from heaven. Now, to my knowledge, there's only one other being who came to earth from heaven, the devil. But he didn't come by choice. He was kicked out. Jesus came, was born, lived, and died as a human. Yes, it was by God's plan, but it was also Jesus' choice. Everything Jesus did was a choice that he made to do what the Father had commanded him to do. Jesus' very purpose in coming was to do the will of the Father. Yes, he came with a mission. There was a mission. Yes, there were specific things that, that his mission would actually accomplish. But, but Jesus came to do the will of the Father. In fact, Jesus also said, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. Yes, it's true. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's true. Jesus 
came to serve. Jesus came to be a light, to testify to the truth, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to all, to heal, to set the oppressed free, and even more. But all of that comes under the umbrella of doing the will of the Father. Jesus' purpose in coming was to perfectly follow God's path. But that's only half of it. Jesus didn't just come to perfectly follow the path on his own, but also to teach a group of people how to follow God's path. And his primary method for teaching people how to do this was, well, it's not what you might think. As a result of the Reformation and eventually the Age of Enlightenment, we as people have been heavily focused on teaching as the primary method for learning like we're doing right now. After Martin Luther, the church became predominantly occupied with teaching through lecture. The effects of this had a great impact on society, paving the way for the scientific revolution. Many don't realize it today, but the church is actually responsible for advances in science, medicine, education, technology, and a lot more. But don't, don't let anyone know that that's how it was. These revolutions, as good as they were, also came with some baggage leading us to completely overemphasize teaching through talking, which means we tend to equally overemphasize Jesus' teaching through sermon and overlook the primary method Jesus used to teach people how to follow God's path, which was discipleship. Over 90% of what is recorded in the Bible about the life of Jesus is in the context of Jesus teaching and training his disciples. Yes, Jesus did teach his disciples sometimes through a lecture format. But the 12 disciples that he called were with him all day every day. They weren't just listening to what he said so they could regurgitate it to others. They were also observing and mimicking every aspect of his life. He was setting an example for them to follow in action as much, if not more, than with his words. Jesus' teaching was never ideological alone. When he taught about the heart and mind, he followed it up with real-world practices that support the internal transformation taking place. For instance, when he talks about murder, he starts with anger, which is a heart issue. And his teaching on the heart actually started with, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The law says, don't murder. But Jesus said, don't get angry with your brother or sister. He goes on to say, when we physically violate the law with our bodies, it's something that begins in our hearts. Telling the truth, loving our enemies, generosity, prayer, anxiety, and judging others. It all begins in our hearts. It's like the little girl who was, who was being punished one day. After getting on her mother's last nerve, the mother made the girl go sit in a timeout. After a few minutes, the little girl replies to mom, Mom, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. External compliance, apart from internal transformation, accomplishes nothing. And this was the problem that God needed to address. As we've said before, the heart is the problem. The inclinations of our hearts are evil. The heart is deceitful and it's beyond cure. And the advice to follow your heart is about the worst advice anyone could possibly give if the heart hasn't been first transformed. This is why Jesus' teaching focused on the heart. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus knew that our hearts think first and foremost of ourselves. Another primary teaching that, of Jesus to his disciples was, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus' method of teaching can be perfectly seen in his closing illustration to the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. See, it's the combination of hearing Jesus's words and putting them into practice that counts. It's not enough to know what Jesus taught. We actually have to live it out. Learning to live out his teaching was Jesus's primary focus with his disciples. Well, Jesus had an incredible ministry. The effects of his ministry were far reaching. People started coming from all around to hear him teach, to, to be healed, and to see this person whom everyone believed was the Messiah. Remember how the prophets in the Old Testament spoke for God and sometimes the, the things that they said were actually about the future? One of the prophets, Nathan, said to King David, When your time comes to be with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who is one of your own sons, and, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will not remove my faithful love from him as I removed it from the one who was before you. I will appoint him over my house and my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. That promise was partially fulfilled with Solomon like we talked about last week, but the true fulfillment of it was yet to come until Jesus. The word spread about Jesus, many calling Jesus the son of David. In fact, to fulfill one of those prophecies, Jesus would ride into town on a young donkey. While he was riding in, the crowds went ahead of him and shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. People were shouting and quoting scriptures that were reserved for the Messiah. The king that the people had been waiting for was here. The promised king who would save God's people had come. Well, oftentimes people have a tendency to take these messages from the prophets and interpret them how they want the future to go instead of really seeking to understand God's heart in the message. God's people had been waiting and looking for the Messiah. But there was a problem. The Messiah the people were waiting for was the one who would overthrow the Roman government and set up God's kingdom in Jerusalem. They expected the Messiah to come and establish the Lord's house at, at the top of the mountains where all nations would submit to God's authority and follow God's ways. 
But it didn't take long for the people to realize that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they had been expecting. Jesus was the Messiah that they needed. He just wasn't the Messiah they wanted. The people wanted a king who would establish Israel as the dominant kingdom in the world. But the people didn't realize that this was actually premature. See, if God established the kingdom before dealing with the corruption in people's hearts, the same problems of the curse would just keep happening over and over and over again. The people were being oppressed by the Roman government, but there was a greater oppression the people needed to be set free from. The oppression of sin. Within a week, less than a week, the people went from hailing Jesus as the son of David to calling for his execution. When Pilate, the Roman governor, offered to release Jesus to the people, they called out for a guy named Barabbas, an insurrectionist. How could this happen? I mean, you might be asking yourself, how in the world could something like this happen? And it just seems, seems so insane from the outside. But when you know the story, it actually makes perfect sense. It wasn't the people who flip-flopped. Instead, it was the religious leaders who, who never actually believed in Jesus in the first place. It was the religious leaders who all along were looking for a way to trap Jesus and, and convict him of a crime. And it was the religious leaders who convinced the crowds to call for Jesus' crucifixion. The people were led astray by their leaders who wanted power. Well, Jesus ends up enduring five or six trials in one night. He was tried before Annas, the former high priest, Caiaphas, the current high priest, and the Sanhedrin, a group of about 70 or so religious leaders. Then he had to be tried by Herod and Pilate as well. And none of them found just cause for his execution. They even convinced people to lie about Jesus, but their lies wouldn't stand up in the court. The only accusation they came up with was blasphemy because Jesus said, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The problem is, it's only blasphemy if it's not true. Well, Jesus is whipped a minimum of 39 times with a torture device. He's beaten, he's spat on, he's made to wear a crown of thorns and a purple robe while he's being mocked, and he even had to carry the cross that he would be nailed to. Completely naked, hanging on the cross, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Son of David, is exposed for all to see. Even though he was innocent, he's not crying foul from the cross. Instead, he's interceding on behalf of the very people who are killing him. He's asking the Father to forgive the people committing this atrocity. How could he do that? Well, at least part of the answer comes from this verse in John 10. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus knew exactly why he was here. Jesus knew all the prophecies about what was going to take place. He knew that he would be falsely accused. He knew he would be hated without cause. He knew that he would be crucified with criminals, that the soldiers would gamble for his garments, that he would be mocked and ridiculed, be given wine vinegar to drink, and even more. And again, he knew why he was here, to do the will of the Father. The Father did not force Jesus to lay down his life. Jesus chose to lay it down. 
Well, how do we know that Jesus chose? Well, we know it by Jesus' prayer in the garden. Just before he would be betrayed by one of the 12 men he'd been discipling, Judas, betrayed by one of his closest friends, Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. Remember how the devil left Jesus in the wilderness until a more opportune time? Well, the Bible never actually records what that direct assault is specifically, but my guess is, my best guess is, it's this moment in the garden. It's ironic, isn't it, that we find ourselves in another garden with the new human being tempted to disobey God? Three times Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. In fact, this is such a, a stressful decision for Jesus that he actually sweats drops of blood. Now we know this condition to be something called hematohydrosis, a condition when an individual suffering extreme levels of stress sweats blood. There in the garden, once again, we see a human made in the image of God, wrestling with following God's path or choosing their own. Except this time, instead of receiving life for making the right decision, it seems that the reward to follow God's path is going to be a cruel death on a cross. Can you imagine how tempted you would be if you were in Jesus' position? If you knew that to follow God's path and plan means an excruciating death, and, and, and if you choose to go your own way, well, you could avoid all that. Jesus chose to lay his life down. Jesus chose to follow God's path. Jesus, the only perfect human to ever live a life worthy of receiving the reward of God's eternal life, chose to lay down his life and receive death. While Jesus was hanging on the cross, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. How could the light shine when the light of the world was dying. After Jesus addresses his mother Mary from the cross, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. Since Moses, there's been a curtain in the temple that separated people from God's presence. Only a few people were able to go behind that curtain where God's presence lived. When Jesus died on that cross, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Jesus, the word that proceeds from the mouth of God and had actually spoken the earth into existence while creation itself is just bewildered when Jesus dies. The way, the truth, and the life was dead. The hope of all nations was hanging naked and lifeless on a cross. The hero of the story, the one who had been sent into the world to redeem the world, was gone. When it was evening and because the next day was the Sabbath when no one was allowed to work, a man by the name of Joseph gets special permission to take Jesus' body down off the cross. 
He wrapped Jesus in fine linen and puts Jesus in a new tomb that he had actually carved out for himself. The bread of life was buried in a tomb. The soldiers rolled a stone over the entrance of the tomb with the gate for the sheep lying inside. The true vine that gives life to the branches seems to have been cut off. The Good Shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep.